Well, it seems perfect. Uh, I love driving. I love people. The money sounded really good. And, you know, you speak to drivers, and most drivers, like, bandy about these figures. It makes it sound like it's really going to be profitable. I became an Uber partner driver in April of 2014. And when I did my calculations on my earnings, it looked very, very lucrative. I started driving first per, um, only for Lyft uh-huh. because I thought Lyft was the good company uh-huh. and Uber was the bad one. When the company such Ola and Uber entered into, into the market, it was, uh, yes, we had a, our uh, heavenly time. Uh, the period is uh, 2015, 2016, 2017, end of 2017, we had a tough time. That was a good income for me. I was uh, I just had my first child. I uh, wanted to Hello, I'm Bama Athreya and you're listening to The Gig. This podcast is about workers who get their jobs through platforms or apps. And this season, The Ride, has focused on one app just about everyone has used, Uber. This is the final episode for this season, and we're calling it The End of the Road. If you've listened to our earlier episodes, you will have met the people whose voices we just heard and heard a bit of their stories. Yassine from London was a laid-off IT worker who became a private hire driver and thought he'd hit gold when he became one of Uber's first drivers in the UK. Tess, from South Africa, was a former television commercial casting director who used her divorce settlement to buy a vehicle and drive for Uber in Johannesburg. Derek was a long-haul truck driver in another South African city, Cape Town, who found a partner and invested in vehicles when the company made its pitch. Rebecca, in San Francisco, was doing a master's degree in social work. Jude, in India, owned a private hire car company in Chennai and thought the apps were just going to help him build his client base. If you think you know the typical profile of who signs up to drive on these apps, I can promise you, you don't. Everyone has their own unique and interesting background, experience, and skills. It's a diverse global workforce that could contribute a lot to any company. But Uber isn't any company. Since this is our final episode, I want to try to make sense of all these stories, what we've learned and what we can all do together to create a better future of work for all of us. We've talked about a lot of things in these episodes. Municipal regulation, taxation, labor law, and the misuse of data. We're not going to cover all of that in 30 minutes, but we are going to talk about two things. The importance of getting control over our data and the importance of restoring empathy and solidarity to our so-called sharing economy. We'll talk first about data. In episode one, Hooked, we learned how the platform incentivized drivers to flood the market and then, when there was a glut of drivers, used algorithmic management to control them. Here's what Yassine had to say about how that worked. So I will go back to my guys, everyone I meet, yeah, and I will show them how much I made, yeah. And they're saying, wow, how do I join? I say, yeah, come over. So I'm getting, like, I, I reckon I referred about 20, 30 people onto Uber, yeah. And we're all making money. 
But then we had some guys that would just do part time, like do one or two jobs. And the problem we are finding is if you worked as a part time driver, your rating dropped because you get rated at end of your jobs, yeah? Which we never had with other companies. Like how it traditionally worked is if you've done a good job, people will give you a tip. With Uber, you didn't get tips, it's called five star rating. Now, that five star rating started controlling our life because it felt there's like a sword above your head, you have to perform a certain way. This thing about ratings was something I heard a lot, and it's important. The platforms are interfering with our human connection. It used to be I would get in a cab and I would tip the driver at the end of the ride. We no longer have that direct interaction between the client and the driver. Instead, we might think that when we interact with the app, when we put in a rating or even a tip, that the driver will see it and will get that feedback. But they don't. We're actually just inputting data that's used for something called algorithmic management. I interviewed an expert, Michelle Miller, about what was happening. Some of my interview with her is in episode one. Here's a bit more from it that explains what Yassine and his friends were really experiencing. A huge piece of this is also um, the use of data from consumer ratings of drivers um, that give consumers a kind of sense of control over the ride, you know, but um, but is actually just a way of distributing management responsibilities to everybody who's using the app through this sort of one to five rating system that determines um, whether or not you get to continue driving for the company. And so, you know, what I think we, many people have talked about many times is both that drivers have to keep these really high ratings, um, uh, you know, above like a 4.8, I believe, in order to continue driving on the app. And those ratings are um, delivered kind of ad hoc by users based on any series of biases that they actually bring into the car ride. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that Uber is collecting data on is all of the evidence of the work that you've performed, how it's been rated, and then making determinations about, we believe, about whether or not you receive information about available rides for the next person you pick up. The problem is the black box. The company controls all the driver's data, even more than they may have intended to share, and it can use the data to manipulate them but they haven't been able to see their own data and until now haven't had any insight into how the company algorithms work. Someone we've been following throughout this season has set out to change that. We met James Farrer in episode one. So I was the classic gig economy um, acolyte. You know, I drank the Kool-Aid. I thought this is something I could do on the side. We followed his story as he tried to pursue a criminal case against a passenger who had assaulted him and he couldn't get Uber to share the name of that passenger, not even with the police. From there, in episode three, we follow the twists and turns of what turned from a simple attempt to get that passenger data into a precedent-setting case on employment law in the United Kingdom. But that is not the end of James's story. On July 21st of this year, he went on the offensive and brought the action to Uber's Netherlands headquarters. He and other drivers brought a class action suit against the company to demand access to their data under the European Union's Privacy Protection Act. You know, what, what Uber will rely on is nudge communications 
and um, algorithmic control. Now, if that's all you've got, how do you go to a judge who will want to take this purposive approach I just described, you know, where, where he'll want to say, okay, I'm willing to discard what these, what these crazy employment contracts might say or commercial contracts might say and instead rely on the evidence. But where is the evidence? What have you got to show me that you are under the management control of this entity? Um, and so we can begin to challenge those kinds of decisions in other ways. So uh, all this to say, the data opens up a new front, and it's not just about access to data, it's about access to understanding of the logic of processing, and it's also um, access to challenge automated decision-making um, that might have been made that's negative to you, and, and also the right to rectification uh, of things that are incorrect in the data that, that the system may have concluded about you. So the, the, data, the data rights are, the point I'm trying to make is the data rights are more comprehensive than just simple access to. So what next for you, James? Well, there's a lot of work ahead of us because um, just as with the employment tribunal, what, what we see with Uber and other operators is that they're developing strategies of resistance and delay. Um, and so we're working through um, a strategic plan response for how we deal with that uh, because we, we have to be persistent and we have to keep pushing forward and we have to um, started getting this data. Well, what we have been able to do so far is being able to challenge Uber um, to give us a good disclosure with lawyers, good machine readable disclosure. And we're trying to establish that as a gold standard, not only with Uber, but with other app operators. But we're still saying that there's, there's data missing that we want to have. And the way I would see this is that there is a, a staircase of conflict over data. So at, at the bottom step is, let's say that's the green step. Um, is the data I put into the machine myself that I willingly typed in my name and my address and my insurance details and so on and so on. There can be no dispute about that, getting that data back because I, I gave it to you and it's, you know, we, you can hardly dispute that you have it. The next step is Amber. A little bit more resistance here, but again, it's quite clear it exists. This is, um, uh, this is what we call sort of observed data. So this is, this is what the machine observed about me at work. So the type of data we talked about, the GPS trace, the telematics data, the braking acceleration, the details of every journey I've done. You know, it's, it's hard to dispute that Uber and other apps um, have that data. It's quite obvious that they do. They mightn't want to give it to you because it feels a bit more proprietary to them because they observed it rather than you shoveling it in. But nevertheless, it exists. It relates to you. Therefore, it's personal data. They have to hand it up. The top step is the red box. This is where the most conflict is. And this is what we call inference data. So this is now that the machine has um, received the data you've given it. It's observed you at work. What has it inferred about you? What decisions has it made about you? How has it categorized mm -hmm. you? How has it profiled you? What decisions might it have made about you on an automated basis um, that might affect your earnings, you know, the amount of quality and quantity of work we will send to you, um, how you're classified and uh, performance managed and so on. Um, so this is this is the data that uh, still Uber um, has not given us. So for example, the, the, the profile data that I've described that those electronic bags, Uber, Uber has not given that to us, even though it's quite evident that such data exists. And, and so here we, in that box, we get to this, you know, potential conflict between the right of the individual to access this data 
versus the right of the corporation to protect intellectual property, if you like. And that, that, that's kind of the ultimate battlefield we're, we're heading into. So, as James and other drivers sued to obtain the right to their information about their classifications and ratings, as we also learned, in episode two, city regulators are also fighting for access to the same sort of data that they need for transportation planning and that they've always gotten from other taxi services. I'd like to replay now a short clip from the interview with former New York City Taxi Commissioner Mira Joshi to remind us of why that is so important. Although we've always gotten data from the taxi operators about which vehicle and which driver is doing which trip and when they're on duty and when they're off duty, and we've used that data to sort of track um, not only the economics of the industry, like are drivers making money, do lease caps need to be higher or lower, it's used for traffic planning, so the DOT uses it for understanding traffic speeds in Manhattan, and it's used for enforcement against drivers who speed and drivers who run red lights and drivers who have excessive moving violations. So it's pretty critical, um, and, and, and probably 10 other you know, uses that I'm not naming, but those are the top ones. Um, but now we had this huge growing market of trip volume and passengers and no idea where they're happening and very little accountability because we don't have, we know that the drivers are licensed by us and the vehicles are, but we don't know trip by trip where they're happening or, you know, how long drivers are driving. Are they driving for hours and hours and hours? Are they driving a little bit? Are they full-time or are they part-time? Um, are cars on the road, you know, 24-7? Are they being just used seven hours a day? Are they being used efficiently or are they, you know, being abused? So um, we started demanding that they give us um, data points. Uber and other platform companies amass enormous amounts of data from drivers and from customers data that could be really helpful to all of us in the hands of city planners, but they can't get it. And drivers can't even get their own profiles and customer ratings without a legal fight. I asked Michelle Miller if in her work with her organization, she had come across any examples of worker organizations that had managed to take control back over their data. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the great example of the NFL Players Association, which negotiated um, for ownership over biometric data that's generated by their use of their version of a Fitbit. Um, there uh, is work that Unite Here has done to negotiate um, ownership and access to data for um, casino workers and housekeepers inside of um, major hotel chains. And for housekeepers, they had an algorithmic system that wanted to assign people rooms that they were supposed to clean. And so the algorithm would like, would, would start sending these hotel cleaners to like different rooms on different floors. Hotel cleaners over the years had actually had a great system for knowing where and when to clean which room next. And the algorithm actually like based on the data that was collecting was giving them bad advice and wasting a ton of time because it was sending them in all of these different directions. And so Unite Here was able to do was actually get to the bargaining table and provide a voice for the workers who were saying like, this technology doesn't work. Um, we need to have control over how it's engaging in decision making, or we need to like just chuck it because this is like not actually going to work for us. I think there are 
one, there are ways in which workers having some transparency and control and agency into the way that that data is being used can be actually quite helpful for everybody. And the municipal implications of the kinds of like data that belongs to the commons that is currently being locked inside of these firms starts to create the ability for all of us to use this infrastructure of transportation and delivery and the ways in which we manage cities and towns in a way that's far more beneficial than what we're seeing right now. Um, And so like, so I am I am deeply committed to this idea of um, not necessarily that um, the the fact of the infrastructure is bad, but that we need to think about who actually can maintain control over it and the ways in which it is shared. And this is one of the most compelling ideas I've heard in my investigations of the gig economy and the future of work. The idea that data is not something that companies have a right to. It's our data. It should be part of a commons and we should decide collectively how it is used. Let's go back to one of the first drivers I interviewed, Derek in South Africa. Remember, he was originally a trucker, and lately he's gone back to that sector and set up a trucking cooperative. Here is his vision for the future of work. Hack and own the platform. So I'm working with in the community structures, looking for existing cooperatives and cooperatives that are registered but dormant, and to pool our resources within that environment to uplift and own the platforms. What do we have in place now? It sounds like what we have in place now is a single app, a single platform, right, that just completely dominates the market. So how do you break that and actually create these alternative platforms? What I've realized is fighting Uber is going to take too much energy and time. And the last three years of fighting Uber, I've come to the realization that we need an alternative to Uber, but a better model that's owned by the communities themselves. The idea of just leaving the Ubers of the world behind, setting up platform cooperatives, is pretty appealing. And it brings me to the second theme for this final episode, the need for us to maintain that human connection and solidarity in a digital economy. Platforms are great for splitting people apart. They isolate drivers, and they let riders hide behind an impersonal rating system. I'm convinced we're not going to survive the current economic crisis without some really fundamental shifts towards smaller, community-centric alternatives. But that won't happen as long as the platform companies dominate our public policy, because they will fight hard against any laws that might actually level the playing field for cooperatives or ethical alternatives. In earlier episodes, we talked about a huge fight over a new law in California that would protect drivers. That law is Assembly Bill 5, and it was passed last September. Now, Uber, Lyft, and other platform companies are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to overturn it. Let's go back to Rebecca Stack Martinez in California for her update on that fight. In California, we have um, 
which is kind of unique, not every state has this, um, that if you could get, garner enough signatures, and I'm not quite sure how many, but I, it's upward, I think, I mean, it's a pretty high amount, maybe like 600,000 signatures, then you can create your own ballot measure to be included um, during the next election. Um, and what Uber and Lyft and DoorDash have done have already pledged at least 110 million towards this ballot initiative. So they've ga- they've gathered the signatures from my understanding. And now they're going to keep pushing and advertising and, and putting out propaganda out there about how terrible AB5 is for drivers and that they should be exempt from the law. And so they'll get that on the ballot and hope that everybody votes yes for it. And if, if, you know, majority vote yes for it, then they essentially have written their own law to be exempted from AB5. So this ballot initiative has been introduced. It's called Proposition 22. And if you are in California, it goes without saying that you should please vote no on Prop 22. The drivers in California are continuing to organize, as you heard in Episode 5, and they're getting the word out about this. But the corporate PR machine is, is really powerful. That's why organizing is so important, and it's why the people I've spent time with feel the real answer is that all of us need to continue to support organizing. Rebecca is no longer driving. She finished her master's degree, got a job with a nonprofit, but she was recently laid off because of the pandemic. Here's what she had to say when we spoke recently about the hope she's seeing, even at a time when many of our friends are going through a really hard time. I think that riders and consumers of these apps, like Instacart, for example, um, you know, with with the help of media and the attention of getting the message out there of what's happening with these workers has really opened the eyes to, to people who generally wouldn't have paid attention or really known about it otherwise, right? And, you know, in during this pandemic, you you know, anytime there's kind of a crisis, right, you see people unify, right, that otherwise probably wouldn't, especially with these essential workers that are out there. And so people are like, yeah, I get it. Like, that could be my teenager working the checkout lane at a grocery store who's now being subject to, you know, coronavirus infection or contagion, right? And and these employers don't care about them. They're not essential. They're they're um, dispensable, you know, they just replace them. And so I think that the general public has definitely become more aware and more sympathetic to what everyday workers are experiencing. I've noticed what Rebecca noticed, that we all are maybe able to see these essential workers a little more than we did before now that we've all gone through a lockdown. And that empathy that we're feeling is important if we want a different and a more humane economy after this crisis is over. It's also important that people who have already built some solidarity with each other are able to maintain it despite social distancing. Let's hear again from Yassine, who launched an international drivers network back in January. You know, like I'm sincere to the cause. I'm there to help drivers. I see drivers as my people, they see me as one of them, although I have stopped driving. But my, I'm focused on the fact that I want to change this industry, I want to make it right. Uh, and I also believe that I was fortunate enough to do it. And I think it would be wrong if I'm in a position to do something and I walked away from it. As for Tess, 
the driver who started the movement in Johannesburg. She decided to stay with her daughter in New York and tried driving for a while, but she said she just couldn't make enough money on the apps to get by. So now she's working as a caregiver for children. And like Yasin, she's continuing to dedicate every spare moment to helping others organize. Here's what she said in our latest conversation. We do need to um, have more time to kind of plan campaigns and see um, how exactly we can take things forward uh, to be effective. But um, I think with all the, the vast amount of experience of all the drivers and leaders and the organizers that we've brought together, um, I'm very hopeful that that we are going to be able to bring about some change. And seeing that Uber, Uber is terrified of um, drivers organizing. For them, you know, I mean, I kind of wish that we could <laughs> just pick up the phone, <laughs> send them like a, a FaceTime of all of us there together chanting. Um, so yeah, it, it will take a little bit of time to figure out but I certainly think that we're in a far stronger position than we've ever been. There are so many more great insights I've gotten from gig workers, organizers, and experts in the course of this project, it's hard to end. And I don't really think it's the end of the road. I know that many of you may be wondering what you can do. How do we get from where we are now to a just and fair digital economy? Some of the people you've just heard from have given us some of the answers. James is using European law to help all of us around the world win the right to decide how our data is used. Mira is sharing her expertise with cities around the world to help municipal regulators protect workers and citizens. Derek is now part of a global network promoting platform cooperatives. Michelle's group, coworker.org, is supporting organizing campaigns fighting not only for workplace protections, but for the right to negotiate around data. And Rebecca and I ended our most recent conversation with some ideas around the future of work and how we need to make sure it's a future where human beings stay connected to one another. You know, um, becoming involved with gig workers rising and kind of the fight for gig workers rights and um, becoming more involved in, you know, the, the, the labor movement and, um, you know, what that means towards the economy and what that means towards workers and so forth. Um, and my degree in public policy, I have become entrenched engrossed, and extremely passionate about what's happening and what this means towards the future of work. Right. And what that looks like the academy and the future of work is shifting. You have new technologies coming in, um, that provide different opportunities of work, right? You have automation coming in, you have AI coming in. So work as we know it today and as we knew it 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago is changing, right? We've, as workers, have had every time there's this shift in the workforce, have had to stand back up and fight for our rights again. So I'm really hoping to be in a space where I can continue to advocate for workers, workers' rights, what the future of work looks like to make sure that we get it right the first time. So 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we don't have to ask the precarious workers to take unpaid time off to go and stand up and protest and fight for their rights that were won 50 and 100 years ago by the labor, labor movement 
we, we, we've learned our lesson, right? So let's, let's take those lessons and apply them to where we're moving in the future instead of having to go backwards again. This podcast isn't just about transportation, but our entry point is Uber because around the world, everyone is using it. And what Uber is doing to transportation markets, other tech giants are doing to other markets. Should we let them? That's the subject of this episode. Do we like the world we've created? If we don't, is this a moment when we can change things? There is momentum building up. Is it the end of the road for the Ubers of the world or for the rest of us? As someone who's been active on worker rights around the world for decades, I believe this is a critical and possibly pivotal moment. With the advent of big data, corporations are in a position to exert unprecedented levels of control over workers. And that control will inevitably be used for exploitation unless we rein them in now. And that is something we can do, city by city, state by state, country by country. All of you who are listening to this podcast can help. Support local organizers. Look for ethical alternatives where you can. Weigh in on local and national legislation. And keep sending us ideas for what else we all can do. This may be our final episode for the season, but it's not the final word. We welcome you to ping us on Twitter with your ideas and send us links that we can add to our website, thegigpodcast.com. We'll keep that updated with new actions because if we all get involved, it will make a difference. Thank you so much for listening to season one of The Gig. I'm Bama Athreya, and I want to give special thanks to John Ross, my producer, who also composed all the music for all of the episodes. I'd also like to thank my advisory team, the Open Society Foundations for their generous support, and the Labor Radio Podcast Network, a wonderful network of resources for anyone who wants to find out more about working people in the U.S. and around the world. Dear friends, this is Evan Papp from Empathy Media Lab's podcast on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. Based within the Washington, D.C. Beltway, you can find us at empathymedialab.com. We are a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which is broadcasting working people's voices 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Check out our show and all the shows elevating the voice of working people throughout the world at laborradionetwork.org.